Building a Culture of Ethical Engineering. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Tim O'Brien, General Manager of AI Programs at Microsoft. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Give us a brief summary of your professional background, if you will. Uh, my background is in technology evangelism and technical product marketing. I actually, I did my undergrad in engineering and I've been in various roles at big companies, small companies uh, for a number of years, uh, 17 years at Microsoft, in fact, actually this year. And the first 10 of those years were spent in developer and platform evangelism. So technical communities is where I really uh, like to spend my time. And uh, I, around three or four years ago, two, three years ago, I guess, I started getting very, very interested in some of the social impacts of tech, which is something that our industry has done a not great job of paying attention to uh, for a long, long time. So I spend most of my time now on evangelism and advocacy for responsible use of tech. So I talk to customers quite a bit, do a lot of public speaking, talk to technical audiences as well uh, about how to innovate responsibly. Why is the underlying culture of technology communities so important? Uh, it's a multifaceted uh, answer. I, you know, social scientists, to their credit, have been ringing the, the bell, the alarm bell, around impacts of technology on people and society for a long, long time. Uh, I think back in the 90s, uh, ACM, Association for Computer Machinery, published some ethics guidelines. And these were all well-intentioned efforts. Uh, they weren't far off, but I, you know, cynically, I would say that the pressures of commercialization opportunity, business opportunity, kind of the hyper-growth ethos <clears throat> that has been in tech for so long, um, uh, these things were no match for, for a lot of those motivators. So <clears throat> when you look at the various phases of technology and waves of technology, advent of the internet, cloud computing, um, a lot of the, the social impacts of those waves of tech were understood after the fact. And we're seeing this now, right? In mobile device addiction, uh, video games, social media, uh, threats to democracy, all these things that we're talking about today. And I think shifting this culture and engineering to think more proactively about the impact of tech on, on people and society is really the, the big uh, change going on beneath the surface of what we read about in the press, which is, you know, AI this and cool technology that, and look at this new product that just arrived and it, isn't it amazing? But I think that change is, is uh, underscored by uh, a required change in mindset and thinking uh, within technical communities about what exactly am I building? Why am I building it? Uh, who is it for? And what's the impact it's going to have on them and society? Probably. You, you referenced the 80s. What engineering ethics lessons should we have learned from, I don't know, maybe the space shuttle Challenger disaster? Um, well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you should bring that up. I was at studying engineering at Purdue when that happened. And uh, I remember um, being in the aeronautical engineering school. Of course, everybody descends on the aero engineers and said, you know, how do you feel about the space program? And NASA was and, and still very much is held in very high regard. As a, as a center of excellence for engineering, but when the truth came out about all the human failures that led to the disaster, ignored warnings, um, the commercial pressures on getting satellites into, into orbit, uh, that that shuttle launch had been delayed like five or six months, and they were in the business of putting sat satellites in orbit for telecommunications companies who were getting pretty grumpy about the delays. 
So you see the business pressures kind of descend on this thing that we, we would traditionally look at as an engineering entity. And when the truth came out, it turned out to be one of the most studied ethics, engineering ethics case studies uh, in modern decades. And uh, I wish we would have dug into that. I wish uh, before I'd left engineering school, we would have dug into some of the human factors and decisions rather than just, you know, going off to class like nothing had happened and learning to, to crunch numbers and solve equations. So I, I think uh, there was a missed opportunity and uh, um, hopefully, well, not hopefully, I know for certain uh, that mistake won't be repeated based on what we know today about computer science and engineering departments all across the country and you know, all around the world actually adding ethics curriculum for, uh, for STEM majors. What are the challenges in converting talk about engineering ethics to actions implementing it? You know, I, the history in tech has been when we innovate our way into a situation, we innovate our way out of it by just building more stuff. And you see, you saw some of this in uh, um, congressional testimony uh, before Congress where leaders of tech companies are, are asked questions about what are you going to do about all the harms that your product or your service is creating for society. And the answer more often than not is, you know, we have our, we have our best engineers working on that. We're going to build some new algorithms and build some new tools. And I'm not questioning the, um, uh, the need for that. I'm questioning the sufficiency of it. You have to be able to land those tools and technologies and new algorithms and all the stuff that the, the best engineers are building into the hands of people who are bought into its reason for being. Uh, it has to land within a culture, an engineering culture that says, this is important. This is gonna help me do my job better. This is gonna help me serve the needs of my customers better. It's gonna help me uh, align what I'm doing to my company's values or mission or whatever the, the case may be. So I, I think for all the talk about tools and technologies to find uh, racial bias and data sets used to train machine learning models or to crack open these black box deep learning models that no one can quite figure out. I think it's all very good work, necessary work, important work, but you have to put it in the hands of people who are, who are bought into and believe uh, that, that, those, uh, that those things are important to use. So on that, artificial intelligence is an area where ethics and bias and responsible design must be considered, right? So what are some of the cultural and maybe geographical differences in how people think about fairness and transparency in AI? Well, it's another, another big discussion. You know, the question I get quite often is who decides what fair is? And uh, it's actually a pretty reasonable question because it is highly subjective. The easiest way to think about it is in terms of what's lawful. So here in the United States, uh, it's against the law to discriminate on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, uh, et cetera. And so I, I talked to a lot of customers about their use of algorithmic tools and machine learnings to do things like sift through resumes for hiring. And they say, you know, we're very principled about, about not considering race and we take the names off of the CVs so it doesn't taint the process. Uh, but if somebody puts a, a bullet on a resume that says, uh, I was captain of the softball team at Spelman College, you know exactly what's going on with that individual, right? It's an African-American female, uh, despite that company's best effort to, to neutralize uh, a bias in a job search, for example. And, uh, and so I tell them, you know, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that 
Uh, it's very hard to hide sensitive attributes from algorithms, and the whole discipline of machine learning exists to find things that humans wouldn't see. Uh, the whole reason this discipline exists is to find patterns in data that are too much for human cognition. Uh, so there's all sorts of examples uh, on how these sorts of things can, can creep into to data. I use the hiring example because regardless of what vertical industry that you're in, everyone can relate to hiring. Everyone has either been hired or is hiring someone or knows some, something about the process. And we had a, I think a memo or email go around here at Microsoft a few years ago, asking us to, to stop using the term rock star in job descriptions. And you see this quite often in tech, right? I need a, I need a rock star Python developer, a rock star full stack engineer. And this is a phrase that is, uh, um, uh, has a highly masculine connotation. Women just don't talk about themselves this way certainly not as much as uh, men do, uh, certainly not in a, in a, in, or definitely in a, in, a, in a technology skills context. And so when you search for tech jobs and you see rockstar developer all over the place, uh, you've unintentionally biased that job search in favor of men because that is just that is not, has a very strong male connotation in our language. So there's all sorts of things like this that I talk to customers about uh, to mitigate bias and fairness because it's never intentional. Right. There's not a, a notion of a, you know, a, a racist developer doing harmful things because he or she has the tools at their fingertips in the form of a keyboard. It's always unintentional and it's always uh, a, an unconscious, uh, unintended impact based that, that results from the power of these technologies to, to suss out sensitive attributes and to make interpretations about these things. What are some of the best practices you've seen for building a culture of ethical engineering? Well, we're fairly early stages. I, I think we need to look at this in terms of the um, where we are today versus where we're going to be in 10 years from now. Uh, so let me just kind of address those in reverse. Right now, there's probably over 100, 120 different universities, uh, engineering schools, computer science schools, just here in the United States alone that have added computer science, or added ethics curriculum rather, to their computer science uh, syllabi. And this is a good thing, right? We didn't, didn't see this uh, several years ago. Some of these are only a year old. I think MIT, for example, added it during the 2019-2020 academic year. So a lot of these programs are brand new. Uh, a lot of the instructors in these programs don't come from the CS department, which kind of does away with an old myth that only CS people should be teaching CS students about CS. Turns out that philosophy people are welcome in the CS department to say, let me you know, help you parse through determination of, of right and wrong. So that's, that's good. I think a lot of the STEM graduates entering the workforce in five to 10 years will be asking questions on their first day of work about why are we building this and who is it for and did we think about this? I think that's all net positive. That's all good. Uh, I hope this will be a solved problem by the time we get there. The, 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 the thing I worry about uh, in the interim are people who look like me, who's been writing TPS code in a bank for 20 years and has never been asked to think about this ever. And all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, hey, here's a harms framework, or here's you know, a process for threat modeling, and here's what you need to add to your workflow. And all you're thinking is, is you know, look, I gotta, I gotta ship this thing on time, I gotta triage all these bugs, I got enough pressure and now you're adding more compliance stuff to me. Uh, you just can't approach it like that. You need to, to kind of take them through, meet them where they are, so to speak, and let them ask whatever questions they want to ask about why this is helpful to the product engineering 
process and, uh, and secure that buy-in. And it's kind of internal evangelism work. But I, I know a lot of our customers are going through uh, this very same, same thing. Tim O'Brien, General Manager of AI Programs at Microsoft. Thanks for joining us and talking about how important this work is. And I hope you're right. I hope we do see uh, a, a new generation of talent that's asking the right questions. If somebody wants to connect with you, Tim, maybe they uh, want to follow you on social media somewhere. How can they do that? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the, the best place. I'm easy to find uh, and Twitter as well. My Twitter handle is uh, at underscore Tim O'Brien. The underscore is important because there's about seven Tim O'Briens on Twitter. Because <laughs> I would have should have come up with a catchier handle, but uh, be that as it may, LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the best places to find me. All right. Thanks again, Tim. Thank you. And, and find more of my interviews right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.